The scripture reading today then is from John 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And our pastor is going to bring us another installment on the Gospel of John. Uh, I'm going to start here by just making some background information about John. We covered a lot of that last uh, time I spoke, but here we're going to do a little bit more, finish that off. Did you know that John was not identified? Did I mention that to you as the author? That came later on when they put his name in the front of the book, but other than that, there's nowhere in the book that you're going to find out who the author is. And so he chose to be anonymous. John, the last surviving, the closest to Jesus, the one that lived the longest that was such a long time establishing the strength of the church, the one who writes a book that we all love so much, because it speaks to our heart, he didn't take credit for the book. The writer deliberately avoids naming himself, choosing instead to simply be called the disciple. That's anonymous. Um, Prizing being the disciple who, what? Jesus loved. Several passages tell us that claiming he is merely a trustworthy witness. He who saw it has borne witness, he says, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he tells the truth, that you may believe. So John remains anonymous, chose to be that way. This is the disciple which testifies of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Bye-bye. And uh, thank you for coming. Uh, But we have other evidence that John basically uh, wrote this book from early church historians and and leaders in the church. Irenaeus, the disciple of Polycarp. Do you remember who Polycarp was? He was the disciple of John in Ephesus who followed John. The one who followed Polycarp, what happened to Polycarp? He was martyred. Uh, and the one who followed him was Irenaeus. And so you would expect that Irenaeus would know, you know, from the same area that John was. And he was the bishop of Lyon, about A.D. 177. He claimed, John, the disciple of the Lord, who also lent upon his breast, himself also published the gospel in Ephesus while he was living in Asia. Theophilus in Antioch in A.D. 180 said that John did it. Clement, head of the great school of Alexandria in 230, Last of all, John, perceiving that the bodily facts had been made plain in the gospel, being urged by his friends, he composed and he called it what? A spiritual gospel. Why would you think that John was a spiritual gospel? It basically goes to the spirit all the time, doesn't it? To the inner heart. Tertullian, one of the great lawyers converted to Christianity, a great voice in Carthage, also claimed that John wrote it. So it was something that the early church fathers really believed. But later on, in the 10th century manuscript, the Codex Toletanus, I can't even say it, Toletanus, introduced the fourth gospel this way, the apostle John, whom the Lord Jesus loved most, last of all, wrote this gospel at the request of the bishops of Asia. Now that's information we didn't know about, against Serinthus and other heretics. In uh, the Muratorian canon, the first list of New Testament books that the church issued, uh, it was compiled in Rome about A.D. 70, lists the New Testament books and gives short accounts of their origin. This is what it says about the fourth. As the 
request of his fellow, at the request of his fellow disciples and of his bishops, John, one of the disciples said, fast with me for three days from this time and whatsoever shall be revealed to each of us, whether it be favorable to my writing or not, whether he should write the gospel. Let us relate it to one another. On the same night it was revealed to Andrew that John should relate all things and uh, aided by the revision of all. Okay. Oh, I didn't do this. Fooey. I messed up. Uh, a little bit more about his anonymity. Uh, it's interesting how this works. Uh, nowadays you can travel around the world and if you're in the right places you can find memorials for the various apostles. I mean, they were very significant people in the church history, or in history, period. There is no other person in history so lauded as Jesus Christ. And of course, the apostles would be the same way. And so Thomas, who went to India, that's the edifice in honor of Thomas. Is that insignificant? All right. Uh, Philip, who went to Turkey, uh, that's the ruins. Bartholomew went to Turkey, that's the ruins of the building that was built in honor of him. Andrew went to Greece. That's the building built in honor of him. Peter, we know about the building built in honor of Peter, don't we? Big. It's a state. And James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of whom? That's his in Spain. It looks like a Spanish temple, doesn't it? That's humongous. Kind of outbeats them all except for maybe Rome. And this is what there is for John. Just little. It fits John. Even though he was the closest and saw the most grand things and God revealed so many things to him, his footmark is almost invisible. That's the way John wanted it. And you can look here. I, I, only, uh, I was going to throw something else in here. I've got a better map now. Remember the map I showed you how crazy that was? I got a better map now that shows how the disciples actually went around conquering the world, basically, for the Lord in the years following uh, the Lord's death. Uh, but I forgot to put it in here. But here you can see what happened to these disciples. Peter died in Rome, Andrew in Edessa, Greece, James, son of Zebedee in Jerusalem by the hand of Herod, uh, John in Ephesus, Philip, uh, Syria, Bartholomew, India, Thomas, Odessa, Greece, uh, Matthew, uh, Ethiopia. You know, I went through this before. They, they died. Horrible deaths. Well, here was the problem. So John is the last one. He's at the end of the century that Jesus Christ came. Remember, when was Jesus born? That's a good hope. You can take four, five, something like that, B.C., and so between the birth of Jesus and the time of John is about 100 years have passed. Well, what had happened during that 100 years? And you can see Jesus, one of the things he had said to the disciples, go into where? All the world. And they did, as we can see from that map. As far away as India, into Ethiopia, over to Spain, all the way up into Russia, and all the way up into Britain. Interestingly, that's a long ways to travel by foot. Okay. Jesus himself was not a global missionary. He only left the land of Palestine, uh, well, Tyre, Sidon, Decapolis, uh, but he never left Palestine. He was there, stayed there his years. 
And there are obstacles to reach the world. There are cultural differences. The Jews considered Christianity foolish. They would hardly give it the time of the day. You remember how many beatings that Paul went through? Uh, they didn't, it was not a very receptive audience. Uh, and the question to be asked is, must a Greek be routed through Judaism to accept Christ? That's a very interesting question. Today, and all missionaries throughout all time, have had to deal with that. It, do we have to make American Christians out of converts in India? Or do we make an Indian kind of Christian? India culture. What do we do? And those are interesting, challenging questions, and they always affect, because our theology is also colored somewhat by our culture. Isn't that right? Um, there are philosophies that are different. There are words that are different. When uh, Christianity came out of a, a, a Hebrew background, and the Hebrews thought so differently than almost anybody else. Uh, just for interest's sake, to illustrate this, there's only 10,000 words in the Hebrew language. Just 10,000. The Greek has how many? 200,000. So what does that tell you? Every word in Hebrew is packed. Really packed. Not only with various meanings in, into the word itself, but those words are tied into historical stories. And so they, they bring in all kinds of baggage and culture along with them. Now, how are you going to take that to another culture in another language? It's a real challenge to think about doing that. The Greeks were on a path of logic. Were the Hebrews logical people? Nope. Nope. They thought from their heart. You know, religion was something that they that just bubbled up. You know, it was not here. It was basically in the emotions. And by the way, that's a really interesting point. Yet within 30 years of Jesus' death, with all of those obstacles, Christianity had spread all over Asia Minor. Greece right, reached into Rome and into the other parts of the world. There must have been 100,000 Greeks, one author who I was reading from said, for every Jew who was a Christian. 100,000. It just really grew tremendously. Now, I'm going to talk about the first chapter of John today. And what is called the prologue, it's the first 18 verses in the first gospel of John. You may open it up and just leave it open on your lap. And here's what John did. He decided at the end of that first century that he was going to write about Jesus. And we already know he wrote things so differently than the others that he couldn't even be called a part of them. He's different. There was the synoptics, then there's John. <laughs> totally different. And here is how he begins. Are you open to John chapter 1? The first part of verse 1 says, In the beginning was what? The Word. That, have you ever seen anything start like that? It almost sounds like Genesis chapter 1, doesn't it? It's the best thing you can get. It has the same words that appear in Genesis, uh, beginning in Genesis. The word beginning. What does the word beginning mean in Genesis? It means Genesis. Genesis is beginning. The name of the book is named after the word beginning. Okay. Uh, in Hebrew, uh, it's bereset. And in, in the Greek, it's arche. That's the word. Um, the beginning 
started with what? In Genesis chapter 1, what did it start with? God spoke. That's basically it. There would be nothing unless God spoke. And what I want to say here is that John is talking about the primacy of word in the first chapter of John. And he's going back to the best source that he has, Genesis chapter 1, the foundation of all Hebrew. And he's saying that it all began with the word. This word that we don't even know who was listening to it, except nature, (laughs) spoke and suddenly things happened. They just started coming together. And the first thing we know of God is the what? The word. He's talking. That's the first thing we know. And so John is going to introduce Jesus in this way. I'll tell you how important that is in just a few moments. The power of words. Um, Well, we know what happened. God spoke and suddenly, you know, the firmaments were divided and there was stars and there was water and there was dry land and all of those things. You think about that. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? Even the wind and the waves and even the elements and the earth and when we have a prayer session like we just had, amazing things can happen because God just simply says it to be so. I have a lady that's dying, dear friend of ours. My wife and I are concerned about her. And I know what it feels like to go through a time like that, but in her heart she's so happy. She's happy with the Lord. She knows she's right with the Lord. She is okay about going to rest. Or living on. Her, kid, or her liver's failing her. Years ago, she pretty well died because of that problem, and she got several years added on. Oh, let's see here. In the Jewish people, they had the presence of blessings. You remember how that worked? The father would get the children together, and he would put his hand on their head, and then he would say some words, and they were very careful to be careful about the words because the words that they used, who honored those words that the father pronounced over the children who honored that because they were the patriarch God honored those words and even though later on they found out in one case there was trickery involved they couldn't pull back the words or the blessing so words are tremendously important and John understands that in the beginning was the word so will the words that come out of my mouth not come back empty-handed God asked in Isaiah. They'll do the work I sent them to do. They'll complete the assignment I have given them. It is, is not my word like fire, says the Lord, like a hammer which breaks the rock in pieces. So, over a hundred plus years before the time of Christ, the Hebrews had become, uh, Hebrew language had become uh, no longer common for the Jew. It was a forgotten language. And listen to what happened to words. They now spoke Aramaic. It was a secular version of Hebrew. And, um, and the only way they knew Aramaic and understood the Hebrew was through the Targums. And that was at the time that they would talk or preach or whatever, talk about the Bible. They read the Bible in Hebrew, but most of the people couldn't understand that. And so they said commentary about it. And that's the way they learned them. That was called the Targums. And so those were the words... And in those Targums, something interesting happened. In the Old Testament, a view of God, if you read the Old Testament directly in the Hebrew, or a translation directly from the Hebrew, God is presented as a fatherly, loving, warm God. And by the way, 
uh, for uh, several years now on Friday night over in Willits. We've been going through the Bible. We read a chapter at a time and then we talk about it. Sometimes we read two chapters and we talk about it. And it's always amazing what we learn about God in those chapters. Just amazing. And you get this feeling that God is so involved in, in how he works with people in their lives. We have, God has gotten a really bad rap. Uh, he deserves much better because of the history of what he's done. But over the years through these Targums, because of the Jewish ideas themselves being overplayed on top of the Hebrew in the translation, they were prompted by fears of God. You can't help but do that. You find out what my religion is like by when you listen to me, right? You find out about me. And when these people were translating the Bible into the common language of the people through the Targums, their own views of God came through. And the view that came through was founded upon fear. Almost all of the Jewish people, you remember, around the Mount Sinai, they were fearful. And they continued to be that way. And they started to present a picture of God out of that fear. Um, and one of the ways that that was expressed is you couldn't even say the name of God because that would appear to be maybe irreverent. And so even the name of God would not be mentioned. And they would put in something like the Word. The Word. And um, this change opened the door to a huge theological shift that resulted in keeping God distant from their hearts. And I'll talk about that. John's going to try to correct it. In Ephesus, 650 years before John would write his gospel, a philosopher, you want to try that? Heraclitus, uh, developed the idea of logos. It's be the foundation of Greek philosophy. Logos means word. His understanding of logos became the foundation of all Greek thought. And this is what it was. If you put your foot into a stream of water, the water goes right by it. If you lift it out, it goes right by. It's like everything is constantly moving. Everything is in flux. It do, it's going to go the way it's going to go no matter what. And so he built an entire philosophy that has since guided all Greek thinking down through history. That's what he did. Um, and he says that God's purposes, his plan and his design is put within us by way of this word, logos. He implants it in our head somehow. It's an inner guide. This became the foundation of all Greek thought. Greeks eventually uh, pervaded all of the Middle East with that same thought. Another man who had a powerful influence on this, and I'll get past this right away here, Philo of Alexandria. He's a profound uh, character in history. He made it his life work to study the wisdom of the Jews and the Greeks. They were living together in a world. He wanted to somehow make that blend a little bit better. He loved Heraclitus' concept of Logos, believing it to be the oldest thing in the world, the word. And he believed that God stamped men's mind with the Logos, the divine reason, enabling them to know the right way. But my question is this, and this is what John's going to begin to address in chapter 1. You think about this. Is theology merely a way of thinking? Is theology a way of thinking? Is it a discipline of the mind? Is that what we know about God? Is that? Is it possible to become godlike through a mental discipline? That's one of the major errors. 
And wherever you find a church that believes that, you find a dry, dead church. And so, John had seen that and what it was doing in his day. And he writes the first chapter to deal with that. Another theory that was going around was called Gnosticism. You could actually hear this. John talks about it in his epistles. And it was founded upon false teachings that matter creation was so evil that God couldn't possibly have created it. Instead, what he did is he made emanations of himself, sort of like faint copies of himself, that one would spring off and then another would spring off of that one, another one off that one, and somewhere way down in those spring-offs there was somebody far enough away from God who had the power of God to create this world, and that's the person that did it. That's what Gnosticism believed, that this is so a total detachment from the world around us. So far away was his final emanation that he, in effect, uh, uh, was God's enemy. Can salvation knowledge come? Is it only available to a certain elect people who understand these very advanced reasoning? No, not at all. That's not what the Hebrew was about. That's not what God was trying to teach his people all through the Old Testament. But that's what somehow came through. Producing spiritual elitism, Fierce asceticism. Do you remember about Simon Stylus? You ever heard that name? He was a, um, uh, one of these uh, monks that practiced like many monks did in the early years of the church, being very separate from the world. And Simon Stylus built a pillar. Not a pillar, it was a post. And on top of this post, way up in the air, there was a platform. And he spent, I think, over a decade, maybe over two decades up on that platform. People would send up food and all the waste matter would come down, and that's his life. He felt like he needed to be away from the world in order to get holier with God. I'm glad you guys don't do that. Do you think you would get better that way? But that's what he did. And when he finally died, what he was wearing was so dirty it could stand up by itself. It was horrible. John begins his gospel by doing what Paul did on Mars Hill. That which you worship but do not know, I now proclaim. He's going to tell them about how they're wrong and he's going to tell them about what is right. So he goes to the heart of the problem. Is it not knowledge but love that builds up? Yes, that's what you've been saying. Is secret wisdom well, how we grow or is uh, it the foolishness of the cross? Is spiritual elitism having these secrets, knowledge, is spiritual knowledge? Do you ever run across that? Do you know that Adventism is always spawning groups engaged with kind of secret asceticism and secret elitism? They're always being spawned in Adventism. Is that what God is looking for? Or is it becoming like Christ? John thoroughly attacks all of these things in the first chapter. Though I speak with the tongue of men and angels, you know where this comes from. It comes from Paul. And yet have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profit me nothing. Were the Jews doing these things that this is talking about in order to gain holiness? Yes. Were they becoming spiritual and holy? No. 
Charity suffereth long. It's kind. It envieth not. It doesn't vault itself up. It's not puffed up. does not behave itself unseemly, nor does it seek its own. It is not easily provoked. It thinketh no evil. Did Jesus run across that kind of a spirit in his work? Absolutely. People who had these kind of problems. Uh, it endureth all things, hopeth all things, believeth all things, beareth all things. Charity never faileth. But wherever there are prophecies, they will fail. When you get into the Seventh-day Adventist church, one of the first things you learn is about prophecies. Is that right? Paul says they're going to fail. They're going to fail. How can prophecies fail? That's a test. <laughs> prophecies will fail in part. Uh, now we know in part, prophecy in part, but when the perfect has come, then that which is in part shall be done away with. When I was a child, I spake as a child, understood as a child, thought as a child. And he's talking to his people and saying, this is the way you are. This last surviving apostle. And he's saying, but when, this is John, or Paul talking here. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. And that's what John is asking his, his church to do. So in the beginning, what's the second verse say? In the beginning was what? The Word. You would expect it to say in the beginning was God. But it says the Word. John boldly declares that Logos was there when everything began. The Gnostics said, couldn't possibly be. Can't have the Word being that closely connected with creation and God. You know, can't be there. Far away, John boldly says he was. The Word was not created God didn't create the word. It's eternal. It's timeless. These are profound statements that John is making. Positional statements. He is building to his point that the word is what? The word is as old as God. The word spoke creation into existence. His word is trustworthy. He's making all these points. Third thing he says, the word was what? Now, we read these words and don't often stop to think about it. He was attacking some real erroneous positions in his day. The closest possible connection you could have with God, the Word has. The Word was with God. It's always been with God. And so, no one can tell us more about God, what he desires, what he is thinking, or what he is feeling, than this thing that's been with him all this time. And now the Word has come to planet Earth the Word is speaking creation into existence. The Word has always been here with us. It is God's agent. Closer than you, nothing can get closer to God than this. And Gnosticism is put away completely with that idea. And the Greek world had now been exposed to a whole new way of thinking. The Word is not against God. John challenges false theology. Next thing you find is the word was what? Yeah, not always there, but the word is actually God. Now, was that easy for the Jews to hear? Do you think they would like that? The word was God. Now, look at this. When you normally talk about God in the Greek, you use a, a um, definite article, the hulk, in front of theos behind me here. The one that has the underline. Use that. Um, but John doesn't use the definite article because to use that would mean that he would be the same as God, identical with God. And is Jesus, the Word, like God identically? No. Rather, he says, uh, 
Uh, And the Word was God. The Word was so much like the Father that any difference between them was impossible because still he was not the Father. Uh, He was so close, but he was not the same, not identical. And so these fanciful ideas that the philosophers had come up with that had saturated the entire world of that day that the disciples were going to go out and witness to, John was giving them the means of how to go about telling the truth, setting the whole world straight. Very interesting. Um, The Jews were being pushed to the realization that there is more to God that they were comfortable in accepting. When Jesus suggested something that caused them to believe that he was saying he was one with the Father, what did they want to do? Yeah, they wanted to stone him. The words of Simeon were being realized. Remember Simeon? Uh, When he held Jesus, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel. John says, their invented evil creator is God. They had good thinking about God, but this evil creator of the world they didn't have much regard for. And John is saying, no, Gentiles, it's impossible. They thought, but that's the truth. Both groups, God was presenting, uh, representing them that their ways were wrong. Okay, let me just show you a few things on the way the Jews were wrong. And you're going to find it amazing to think that they could do this, but they did. When you look at the book of Genesis, you'd think the Jews would understand about God in Genesis, wouldn't you? In Genesis, it says that God, and what's the word for God in Genesis? Elohim is is plural. God, whoever was writing Genesis... Moses, he could have used a singular name for God, Eloha or Yahweh. But in Genesis chapter 1, he used a plural form for God. How come the Jews couldn't see it? Could it be that their prejudices kept them blind? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. They were so blinded by one text that they couldn't see others. Could it be possible that we could be that way? Sure. Remember now thy creators, plural, in the days of thy youth. Ecclesiastes 12.1. In Genesis chapter 1 again, let what? Us make man in our image after our... Do you think you would have fallen into the Jewish trap if you could see this? It's right in front of them. The Lord God said, behold, man become as one of us. Let us go down and there confound their language in Genesis chapter 11 the time of the flood. Wow. But to us, there is but one God, the Father, and of whom are all things, and we in him, one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. By whom are all things. So Jesus was involved in creation. Jesus answered them, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but because he said that God was his father, making himself equal with God, even though Genesis said that. Wow. Now the next point that John's making, he brings it up in verse 4. John begins uh, 1-4 and ends in 12-31 with the word life. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Do we have life if we don't have Jesus? Do we? 
Do you know people that don't have Jesus? Do they have life? Not according to the Bible, they don't. I am come that you might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. If you don't have Jesus in your life, you don't have life. Life is a drudgery. Life is painful. Life is a problem. But if you have Jesus in your life, <laughs> you're just like this lady, a friend of mine, who's dying. She's happy. And she's a wonderful lady. That's crazy. She's a wonderful lady. As the Father hath life in himself, so he has given life to the Son, to have uh, given to the Son to have life in himself. Jesus is the only way to enter into God's life. He's the pathway. And then he says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. In A.D. 30, Jesus secretly returns to Jerusalem. He didn't go back because of his ill treatment when he first went. And so he stayed away from Jerusalem many, many years. But in A.D. 30, just six months before he would die on the cross, he was back in Jerusalem. And you know what he did? He secretly went there. He wanted to be there for the Feast of Tabernacles. And in the Feast of Tabernacles, in the temple area, they had these great big pillars. And on top of these pillars, way up in the air, top of big basins filled with oil. And they would light these basins. And it would light up the whole city, you know. And it was fantastic. And Jesus went to the Feast of Tabernacles. He wanted to be there. And he stood up near those basins in the temple area. And he said with a loud voice, can you imagine this? Can you just see it in your mind? I am the light of the world. He's declaring what he is. I am the light of the world. And he wanted all the world to come to him to recognize the light. He had always been the pillar of fire. You remember when Moses saw the fiery bush? He was that. The Shekinah the light that was in the, in the holy, most holy place, and the pillar of fire that was over the sanctuary at night. He was the Urim and the Thummim, burning bush uh, that couldn't be extinguished. He had always been that one, the light that shineth in the darkness, and the darkness, what? It couldn't consume or put out the light. It couldn't control the light. And neither could any force on this planet keep that light from shining or keep that life from coming. And Jesus is telling his church these stories and John is hearing it and he's writing it down for the people that are going to go out and finish the work of taking the gospel to the entire world. Reminding them these old philosophies that you've been hearing that are controlling and fixing people's minds are bad. Tell them about Jesus who is the source of all things. Remind them about Jesus. So he turns all philosophies upside down and gives them the correct philosophy, the correct theology. Okay, the next section he talks about, he talks about John the Baptist as you're looking in there in verse 6 and onward. There was one, there once was a man, his name John, sent by God to point out the way to the life light. I'm reading from the Message Bible. He came to show everyone where to look, where to believe in. John was not himself the light, but he was there to show the way to the light. He was content. John was, John the Baptist, just being what God designed him to be, the herald. That's all. So after John realigns the philosophies and the theologies and straightens them all out and points them to Jesus, points them to the Word, gets them focusing on Jesus as a solution, he is the light, he is the Word, you know, it's not all these ancient philosophies and so forth, he then takes them to John the Baptist. 
And now what is he trying to point out with John the Baptist in chapter 1? He lived his life solely for Jesus' benefit. Solely. There was nothing in it for John. John's message, confess your sins, bring forth fruit of repentance. Jesus picked up that same message. Prepare you the way of the Lord. He's coming. He's coming. And John wanted the the church that he was leaving, the next generation of Christians, going out into the world. He wanted them to live their life like John lived his life. Solely for the benefit of Jesus. And earmarked by confession of sin, works of repentance. And prepare the way of the Lord is their message. Called the Pharisees and Sadducees vipers. He didn't mince words. And neither is John. Tell the truth. And that's what we should do today. Tell the truth. Be cleansed and be born anew. Don't think your genealogy will save you. (laughs) He says the axe is laid to your tree. (laughs) He said that. I baptize with water. Next comes the baptism of what? What's wrong with Christians? What's wrong with Christians? The first generation of Jesus' disciples, every one of them went through a horrendous life and death experience. And they went out telling the world, if they're going to listen to John's message, they went telling the world that that's what it's going to be like. And this lady that I keep telling you about, she was happy. She had a chance to serve the Lord. That's fine. That's it. We've got to adjust our thinking and see things totally different. John didn't live for anything for himself. He lived totally for God. And that's why the Apostle John is telling the story of John to the church. This is, he doesn't go back. You remember, he misses and leaves out the whole birth narratives and all of that stuff. He starts his gospel here. And he's telling the people the most important thing. Got to believe in Jesus. It's got to be founded upon him. You got to change your orientation the way you think. You got to start living like John the Baptist lived. I am not worthy to carry his shoes or to untie his shoes, is another way it's put. He will purge with an unquenchable fire. And crowds, multitudes went out to hear John. And he was the herald that got their hearts ready for Jesus. Well, here's a picture I found of John the Baptist. I doubt if it was taken of him. But uh, it seemed to... Look like him, don't you think? Kind of a hairy beast a little bit there. Um, He was inbred to lift up Jesus. You remember when Jesus first was in his presence, was in the womb of Mary, went to to see uh, uh, the the mom of uh, John the Baptist, Elizabeth, and what did in the womb John do? He was inbred. You know, to respond to Jesus. Oh, I wish my life could be that way. I'm praying about it. At his birth, his formerly mute father during the entire time that his wife was pregnant with with John declared, And thou, child, shall be called the prophet of the highest. Uh, Zechariah said, For thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. And that's what John wanted to send the church out to do. He turned the hearts of his own disciples towards Jesus. John the Baptist did. And among those was, guess who? The apostle John, who was a disciple of John the Baptist, left 
and followed Jesus. And John was happy with that. In Willits right now, we're losing all kinds of members. They're moving, doing different things. We wonder, well, can we even survive? You know, that kind of stuff. Well, that's what happened. John didn't think about it. His concern wasn't about himself or his fate. And yet Jesus called him the what? The greatest of all who have been born of women. Amazing. John chapter 1, <clears throat> 39 to 37. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh the man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. And John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. And I knew him not. But he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said to me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizes with the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. Again, the next day after John stood and two of his disciples uh, and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak. They followed Jesus. I think John, the apostle, was one of them. Those two right there. That turned John made a profound effect. Then Jesus turned and saw them following and said to these disciples, What seek ye? And they said of him, Rabbi, which is to say, being interpreted master, where dwellest thou? And he said, come and see. This was the call to discipleship. Jesus said, what seek ye? And they said, where do you live? And Jesus said, come and see. That's as formal as it got. And they became his disciples. God is calling people all the time. People are not intimidated by the seriousness and the, and the obstacles that come with that call. Because with that call comes life, meaning, power like they've never seen before. And John was perfectly satisfied, John the Baptist, with that. And so here's the effect of these 18 verses in John's prologue. It goes straight to the nuts and bolts of what it means to be a follower of God. Chapter 1. John the Baptist is the example of what a true follower of God should be. And he's telling the church that. Straight as an arrow, unflinching devotion and dedication. That's our roadmap. Blowing away Jewish and pagan false notions. Just blowing them completely away in just a few verses. Making it all clear. We need to have that clarity in our own mind and God can give it to us. Haven't you experienced that sometime in your life when Jesus becomes your life and he gives you the light? I am the light of the world. What do you think the light gives you the ability to do? To see. You can see things you couldn't see otherwise. And sometimes they're just formulate right in your head. You automatically know things that you didn't know before. You have answers to questions that you've never had an answer to before. That's what God does. And so God is, is able to make all kinds of things, good things happen. God will not be conformed to our mold. We must surrender to God. It is our only option that John the Apostle is saying here. That's the rules. He tells us how he became convinced that Jesus was the real thing. 
He tells us that story of what it made a difference in his life. Do you remember when John, I've read interestingly, and I would encourage you to do this if you like, take a look at Ellen White's writings, and she has a quite interesting story about John. And she talks about how this fiery disposition stayed with him for a long, long time. In fact, a little bit still remained into the end. It gave him the power to do things, you know. But she also talks about how by being so close to Jesus and the Holy Spirit, when Jesus left, was so close to him that he was eventually able to get on top of all those things. And he was in charge rather than just the emotions. And how he changed. And his whole attitudes changed. And you can make a little list of before and after. And I've done that. How he was here and then how he was here. He totally changed. Totally changed. The last book about Jesus has profoundly affected the world. It is infused with his spirit and with his heart and with his humility. So here's our assignment. We're going to continue to read, John. Now that you know a little bit about the background, you know a little about who he is, you know what his agenda is all about and what he's trying to do and what he's trying to tell us. He sets so much of that out in the first chapter. I want you to continue to spend time in John. You're not after anything. You're just to expose yourself and to get familiar with it. Read the book a chapter at a time. And read it and then just focus on that chapter. You may spend a week, you may spend two weeks just looking at that chapter and thinking and thinking. As we did already, taking a look at the words real carefully and what are they saying? What does that mean? And the book is there for us to do that and the Holy Spirit will help us. Look at a few verses at a time. Um, we were reading at the end of Samuel and the first of Second Samuel last night. And it's just amazing what can come up in a discussion with people as you look at a verse in the Bible and just think about it and you can see the Holy Spirit just coming in and helping us to find things. Use prayer. Wait upon the Lord because God will hear you on this one. This is very important. Asking, what is John saying? From his day to our day, keep that happening and what does this mean to me, what you're reading? So we're spending the whole year on John. It's going to go by fast. And we've just given some background material last time I was here, and today, some initial material. But now we're going to go into the stories and take a look at them individually as we move forward. And I hope this will be an enjoyable experience.